This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. It turns out that rock bottom isn't the worst place to be. When you have nowhere else to turn, you realize we need renewal. Mark Sayers has not written another book on the challenges that face the church in the West, though few would be better than Mark to do so. He's written instead a handbook for not only surviving, but even thriving in our secular age. Sayers is the author of Reappearing Church, The Hope for Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture, published by Moody. He is the senior leader of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. Many listeners of Gospel Bound may know Mark as the co-host with John Mark Comer of the podcast, This Cultural Moment. I appreciate Mark's view that we're just not going to be smart or savvy or rich enough to meet the challenges of our post-Christian culture. So much is working against us in this world. He writes, the whole of contemporary Western culture, from the structure of our malls and cities to the very fabric of the Internet and social media platforms, are ideologies that shape us toward a vision not rooted in the eternal, but in the unlimited freedom and pleasure of the individual. End quote. But of course, Mark doesn't just see challenges. He also sees opportunities. And we're going to talk about both those challenges and opportunities in this interview. Thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound, Mark. Absolute pleasure. Well, early on in your book, you point to the communists as an example from which Christians should learn. How's that supposed to work? Yes. Um, I guess it's, it's, it's not so much the communists as in a man called Douglas Hyde, who was the editor of the Catholic Worker um, uh, newspaper in the ni- mid-century in the UK, um, who came to faith and wrote a book really challenging the church in a number of ways. But one way which really resonated with me is that the church was much larger than the Communist Party in Britain, yet he noticed that the Communist Party never saw itself as this beleaguered minority, even though it technically was. Um, and he saw the church, although much larger, seeing itself as this beleaguered minority. And that was in a time which many people would describe as Christendom, you know. Uh, and, yeah, so I think he he looked at the way that they organized themselves and offered some ways forward. Um, so, no, I'm not advocating a new <laughs> Christian communist synthesis, uh, but I think he had an interesting point. <laughs> I just thought I'd open there. That'd be appropriate for anybody who listens to your frequent references to Russia. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this cultural moment. So I share a lot of that appreciation for Russia. Mm. So, anyway, uh, if culture is less caught than taught, Mark, and our street philosophy is more intuitive than rational. Why do we spend so much time preaching, writing books, and recording podcasts like this? Mm. Well, I think, I think the two work in harmony. Um, I think it's not that one, you know, ideas or, or thoughts, uh, uh, you know, somehow um, inferior to, I guess, the actions and and disciplines and habits that, that form us. I think there's a 
you know, a, a, a symbiotic relationship between the two. So I'm, I'm big into, you know, ideas and I love preaching and sharing ideas, but I'm also very aware that um, I wear this other hat, um, which is, you know, being a pastor who then sits with people afterwards, sees how they're formed by culture outside of those things. And I think the two need to, you know, work together. Um, you know, I think that's how the church has always worked. I'm a veteran, as you are, of a lot of the debates about the emerging church. And one of the most persistent critiques of the emerging church was we've got to stop this whole monologue of the sermon. And I always pushed back on that and still push back on that because I'm thinking, well, I mean, this is God's word brought to bear through his ordained means for the good of building up his people. So I completely believe in that. And yet I've never suspected, and in fact, I think not even our homiletics professors would even necessarily say this, that that somehow most of our Christian discipleship comes through that kind of, you know, straight monologue sort of information transfer. So just help to understand where does that fit? I mean, all the attention that we devote toward rational development at a time when people don't seem particularly inclined toward rational, rational argumentation. Yeah. I think that what's what's happening, um, and and I think things are actually moving incredibly quickly. Even since I wrote this book, I think things are moving quickly with a culture and a new phase. And um, I just read over the Christmas holidays um, Martin Guri's book called Revolts of the Public, and he he was a CIA analyst who studied the effect of increasing information on the public. And he I think his stat is that in 2010, the amount of information that existed from you know, the beginning to where humans were at then doubled in a year and then doubled again the next year. So he says that's radically changed the world and people now have far more information at their fingertips. Um, If you go back to, you know, 300 years ago, the preacher was often the most educated person in a town or a village or, you know, in the city. They they often at the beginning in England, at the beginning of sermons, they would give local news, um, you know, as part of the announcements. And, um, so you had this sort of preacher as sole arbiter um, in many places of information and thinking. Um, now, I actually think that we're at a new place where people, it's not that they don't have enough information, they've got too much information. And I think the preacher is increasingly taking the role of someone who interprets and actually guides a way through that information. Um, and so I think, you know, preaching the word, you know, and John Stott talked about, you know, that sort of way of preaching in two worlds. But I think that's even getting a greater resonance now because people are just like, man, I'm getting so many gospels coming at me. And I mean that by secular gospels, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you preach the gospel? You know, they're, they're wanting people to guide them. And, and one of the big surprises I've seen in the last two years is people turning up. I mean, I said this would never happen. People turning up to church, complete cold turkey here in Australia, completely mm-hmm. unchurched, multi-generational unchurched. And they're turning up because... They're coming to the end of themselves and actually wanting someone to guide them through this information avalanche and this fragmented um, culture. And, and, you know, the word, the word brings new possibilities and the good news, you know, you know, goes out and creates new things in us. It, it, it remakes us. And, and so I think there's, there's a, a greater, a, a new form of doing that now. And I don't mean to say like, let's do some new kind of preaching, but, but I think preaching hasn't gone away. It's, it's super important, particularly in this moment. All right. So I'm just going to hijack this podcast now. I'm going to ask you to do some church consulting for me. <laughs> uh, we're uh, in, a, in a mega church context, but it's only gotten there in a couple of years. Mostly young people, probably average age, mid-20s or so in our church, a couple thousand people or so coming regularly. We had a debate among our elders about theological vision. 
And we all recognize that biblical and theological literacy is pretty low in general in our culture. And especially in our non-denominational context, we don't have people who are, and with converts, we're not, we don't, we're not just sort of handed a bunch of Baptists or Presbyterians who have been well catechized, for example. So we sense a strong need to be able to deliver information and teaching to them. At the same time, many of our converts are coming through their exposure to our community. They, they seem to be assimilated into a group of people that they want to become and be like in contrast to what they've experienced in the world. And then sort of in the process of our community, they become formed and socialized into many of the beliefs that we teach and reinforce through classes and through our preaching and whatnot. So if you're advising a church like ours, do you say, well, what they need, of course, is an extensive Bible literacy training program because they just don't know history, Bible theology well enough? Or do you say, well, no, instead, it's really focus on community because that seems to be the leading edge of so much of your evangelistic witness there. I know they don't have to be mutually exclusive, but in churches, we're dealing with limited resources. Mm. Look, I, I do think you can do both. Um, and, you know, I think that both are there. I mean, I think, yeah, what, you know, I think your point that we're increasingly having people come to us who are less formed. And in some ways, I've thought about when I sort of read the histories of revivals, it's like, you have a very low point, like the 18, uh, so 1700s was a low point. And then there was a series of like almost aftershock revivals is a way of putting it. Um, and I feel like where we've come now is so much of that received knowledge has been forgotten. You know, it was passed on generationally, but we're sort of getting to an end of particularly a couple of generations have rebelled against previous generations. And we're in an age which questions authority. So people are coming, but they're looking for, I think it's actually an opportunity because what they're looking is, yeah, I want truth but I also want to see how to live and I want to see that you're doing it as well. So for me, I, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. I think we can preach the word, we can preach theologically, we can preach a theological vision which connects with the need that they're seeing in the world and then as, through a lived discipleship embody that. Um, and I think on the resource sense as well, a lot of this can just happen relationally. You know, if you've got people who are in your church who are, um, you know, particularly see with young adults, there's a hunger to now be, they've got enough peers, they're overdosing on peers right. they sit and look at their phone. What they, they know what their peers are doing at any moment, put them with an older, wiser believer. Um, they love that. And, and we're seeing real fruit and friendships go across generations. So I think, yeah, you know, the community is a discipleship tool. So I, I would say do both. Let's do a little bit more analysis then of sort of the cultural situation we're in. You offer a description in Reappearing Church of sort of the post-Christian pattern of personal renewal. Just give us that street-level perspective on what human flourishing looks like from the post-Christian perspective. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that people need to understand about post-Christianity is often the way post-Christianity was taught was we're back at ground zero, like everything is a you know tabula rasa. Everything's just clean slate. Uh, but really, in many ways, the sort of skeleton of Christianity continues, or faith, but all the internal organs and flesh is gone. So it's so interesting how people in the West talk about a sense of what it is to flourish as a human being, but almost use this Christian language. Um, the person who had you know a terrible misfortune, but then fought their way back and was rebirthed when they discovered this career or this romantic relationship, or they moved to Thailand, or they got this great skill. 
And so many of our personal success stories, just look at biographies, success stories, you can look at that, um, you know, uh, have that Christian salvific language around it. And I think there's multiple ones. I don't think there's one one anymore. There is the businessy entrepreneur one. Donald Trump is sort of that story. You know, he, he portrays that story. Um, there's the person who health is becoming this really interesting one as well. And it's almost sort of puritanical now with health, like clean living. I expunge the toxins in my body of anything like toxins and bad foods like sin. And, you know, I ate my way to this better thing and I'm now I'm glowing on a beach somewhere. Um, so we see that when we're preaching the gospel, we're actually in a sense having to apologetic, you know, do our apologetics, not just against say, here's the worldview of Buddhism or atheism. Often when we're doing apologetics, it's actually against these secular post-Christian personal renewal stories. I love that you mentioned Thailand. I don't know why it's always Thailand, but that seems to be the place. It's always Thailand. <laughs> oh, too. You get that sort of quasi-Buddhist mentality yes. in there. Yes. seems to work. I mean, with health, it's not merely that sort of puritanical or even Levitical mm. uh, views of contamination and things like that. But also, you get your church, you get your congregation as well, your gym or you know others yes. who you're selling your product to. And so you have your rituals and it really does become a sort of alternative uh, religion there. Mm. Uh, we're on the wrong side as Christians of a cultural narrative that says that we, you and I and the rest of us, are standing in the way of progress and utopia. Uh, I think that's what Charles Taylor would call a subtraction story of the West. Just subtract Christianity and you'd see this sort of human flourishing there. How do we as Christians flip that narrative? I think it's flipping itself. Um, and and part of my my, my theory you know, as I was writing the book, but have seen it even more prevalent is um, I think Christians need to realize there's an element where, say, during Christendom, we had the ball and the ball was moving culture to a future flourishing. Secularism has taken the ball off us <laughs> and, and many people lament that. But the positive side of that is like, okay, you go, guys, you, you go, guys, create your utopia. Let's see how you do with that. Um, currently, the world, as we speak, um, is going through a coronavirus, you know, you know, fright, a scare, you know, and and the World Health Organization just announced, you know, it's now a global emergency. Um, that's in China, but what's interesting is one mile from here, um, where I grew up, the mall where I grew up is, you know, it's empty now. It's a highly Chinese area, and Chinese New Year's been cancelled on Saturday, which is a big event around here. There's people walking past my house with masks on. Um, and there's, you know, been people affected in this area with coronavirus. And that just shows how our message of here's we're going to connect the world. The world's just going to instantly get better. We're going to get rid of disease. We're going to get rid of all of these things. And here's a story where, hang on, that's not happening in the way that we thought. In fact, globalization, and this is not an argument against globalization, but this is a lot more complex than we thought. Um, the political realm has um, actually delivered results that are not what we exactly thought. Running the world and moving it to a prog progressive utopian future is not as simple as we thought. So there's an element where I think we're moving from a post-Christian progressive dominant narrative to now one of increasing frag fragmentation. Um, I think you have a, or did you have a follow-up question there? I could see you. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, no, that's just one of the benefits of being able to talk yeah. that because I was wondering the what's next 
Yes. Because we'd love to imagine that we've reached sort of the end of history and we know, oh, well, Jesus is going to come back. And then Jesus yeah. comes back or everybody turns back to the church. We're all post-millennials now. And then, uh, which is not just getting older, it means actually, you know, the Christ, you know, the kingdom has come mm. in our midst. But you, I think you answer the question there, which is, well, there's no one next. Yes. Next is everybody doing sort of their own thing within their own subculture, I assume. Mm. So it's like cable TV just evolving into a million different streaming services yes. and everybody now yes. has their customized experience. Is that yes. more of what you're expecting? Yes. So, and a, and a way to put this, I guess, in an American context as well is that, um, we understand that, yeah, with cable streaming, it's gone into multiple streaming networks or multiple websites. Um, but it's interesting because America, in a sense, politically still has this zombie category, which is like two, two networks. Mm -hmm. So we've got the left yep. and the right network. And that's yep. just being, and that still defines so much of the Christian conversation in America. Um, but it's being absolutely undermined as we speak. The Republican Party has split into different factions. Uh, the Democrats are currently splitting into different factions. Um, and also like what's happening is so much of our, in the West, our imagination goes backwards. So particularly politically, we look back and people on the right are afraid of the return of socialism. People on the left are afraid of the return of fascism. Everyone's like, watch out for fascism, watch out for mm -hmm. socialism. But in the world, there's entire and new political entities arising. Um, China has just drafted a new sort of um, political document going forward, which is its attempt to underdo, undo individual rights and, and liberalism in the world. They have a global project to, to actually then promote this through the world. Things like China, other countries are going to absolutely subvert so many of our Western understandings. Um, and that disruption is going to be the next thing. So disruption is going to be normative for a while, but I see a, a tremendous um, advantage in that. So what that means is, it's not like here's the Christians and then there's the culture. It's now Christians and the cultures. Um, um, and what's so interesting is all those cultures feel beleaguered. So everyone feels beleaguered. Um, Hollywood just had its feelings hurt as Ricky Gervais made fun of it at the Golden Globes. And now they feel beleaguered. Like, hang on, everyone's <laughs> beleaguered. That's <laughs> the way you... It's the way you get. Uh, it's the way you get power is yes. by claiming victimhood. Um, Tom Holland would say it's a bastardization of the way that Christians, through the crucifixion, well, Jesus Christ Himself, through the crucifixion, then ended up valorizing and uh, in, in bringing glory into the greatest victimization yes. there through the resurrection there. So now we have a culture that's incredibly Christian and thoroughly Christian in its expectations that there's sort of power within victimhood at the same time is lacking the entire purpose of it, which leads to what I was wanting to ask about the secular progressive myth, which you say wants the fruit of God's kingdom without the king. So how can we as Christians help them to see that you can only get them together? Yes, yes. And I think part of that is a learnt lesson that we're seeing. And, um, you know, I think that there is a point where so, so much of what we're dealing with particularly in the world at the moment, is an interrelationship between an increasing world of fantasy and online, which even our political conversation has gone to, and then what happens in the real world. Um, and so I think the church is actually doing an incredible job. Um, there's the book I read recently, uh, or read parts of it recently. I've completely forgotten the name, but it's a, it's a guy who traveled across America. Uh, he's not a believer, um, but he just would go to, like if people said, 
you're in this town, don't go to that neighborhood. He would go to that neighborhood. And he found two things, McDonald's. Um, Chris Arnaud, Dignity was the book. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he would go to the McDonald's, you know, and McDonald's would be this gathering point. But the other thing he said is in all those communities, there's a church open. And he said that the public myth is, oh, the church is against these people, transgender people, et cetera. But he would go to these churches and many of them were, you know, theologically orthodox, but they would be accepting all those people. You know, and I've seen that on the ground. You know, when I, when I was, my first ever trip to the United States was um, uh, to visit, you know, a gang affected area, you know, and I went into a, a prison and it was the Christians going into the prison. And, you know, that's here in Australia, you know, the 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 church um you know is is so often the ones first welcoming refugees in these people you know i was part of the salvation army for 10 years and the the huge lion's share that they they carry um for people who are poor in in my country um so there's an element where i think like we're listening to a conversation that's often disconnected from reality let's keep doing what we're doing and humans live in the real world and i think we've got to fall back in love with the real world part of i think what this secular post-Christian, you know, thing does or this, you know, world of images and and ethereal internet culture that's defining, you know, who we are. But actually let's connect back where we are, which is real people in the real world living in flesh gospel um, and following, you know, Jesus who rose from the dead. Um, yeah. I'm so excited about this book because when I set out 10 years ago to work on a book on the history of revivals, uh, which became the book on God-sized vision. I just didn't see a lot of other people talking about it, but that's really the heartbeat behind reappearing church. And you say that the study of history shows that God moves when it looks like the church is slipping into unalterable decline. I wanted to give a couple, give a couple examples of that from history. You know, I would see one example where uh, in the 18th century, um, you know, the church was actually in quite a significant problem. Um, the indus- beginnings of the Industrial Revolution as people were moving out of the system which Christendom understood, which was this parish system, which was primarily based around agriculture and urban centers became huge and, and the beginnings of globalization and empires, people were sent all over the world, to places like the United States, the Caribbean, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And the church faced this tremendous challenge. And I can't remember exactly what year it is, but there was a year particularly at St. Paul's, that gigantic, you know, cathedral in, in, in London built by Christopher Wren after the Great Fire of London in 1666. There was something like six people turned up to Easter service, you know. Now, we're not used to hearing those stories. The first, um, you know, church service in Australia in the 18th century um, this guy had to, it was the chaplain had to build this church and it was a handful of people turned up to this 500 uh, seat, you know, auditorium, um, I think was the number. And, you know, we're not used to hearing those stories. The American West, you know, was quite an unchurched place. And, and then you had this tremendous move of God that began, you know, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley kicked off in Ireland, spread all across the world, you know, at that moment. I mean, we're living through a contemporary one at the moment. Um, for many years, there was a church um, in, you know, what is today Iran in Persia. Um, and there were missionaries who went there. There was a local church. There was an Armenian um, sort of church, which is primarily just around the Armenian people. Just struggled so hard to actually bring Persians to faith. And the church looked like it was in decline, uh, particularly when the um, Islamic Revolution um, and the Ayatollah came back from France in 1979. Um, but then what we're seeing in the last 10 years, we've seen more Persians come to faith than in the last 10 centuries. And that is something happening in the world. At my church, we've got people turning up who are Persian people. And through just, just crazy stories, people who are catching refugee boats 
you know, with, with people smugglers and, and coming to Australia somewhere in the sea between Indonesia and Australia, having like seeing Jesus, you know, and they're telling you this story. Like I'm not used to hearing these stories and dreams and that's going into Turkey. A lot of people have gone there. It's going to Afghanistan. It's, it's revitalizing churches in Scandinavia. So there's actually these renewals happening. Um, and I think they're really important to tell these stories as sort of a form of narrative warfare against the dominant story of secularism. Hmm. Narrative warfare. I am going to steal that from you and hopefully I'll credit you for it. <laughs> but people will know, they'll oh, remember it's, this. It's, it's actually, not mine. <laughs> well, it's actually, it's actually a, a book that I'm working on now um, because that's exactly what we're trying to do that I think, well, let me ask you how you navigate this. So many people I know who know the most of what's happening about the world are the most pessimistic about it. You might say that they're the most sober, um, like they can, they can rattle off for you the, the 10 terrible things that you probably didn't know about that are probably going to kill us all in the next generation or so. And you're clearly somebody who's well in touch with those things. And yet those people do tend to at the same time be the most pessimistic. It's almost like it'd be better the alternative of just not knowing anything, you know, getting out of that fake world of online that you talked about, or at least the online world, and just get in that real world and almost just close your ears. You'd almost be better off doing that. How do you navigate that where you know so much and you're so well read about what's happening, but you're not discouraged. You're actually really encouraged about what God's doing around the world. Well, I think I think I was profoundly discouraged for a number of years. And I think two things happened. One is I think things began to change and there was almost this inevitability that I'd, I'd bought into that the church was just going to face this slow decline. Then my life would just, let's just hang on guys, you know, and if I can just keep almost the people we've gotten, maybe if a couple of people come to faith, that's good. Um, and, but as I saw the actual, you know, I guess I've tried to read culture for many years, but actually see these profound shifts in the last few years and see them optimistically. Um, I'm not invested in, you know, Western secular democratic liberalism, great project. You know, I live in a very democratic liberal country, which has the second highest wealthiest people in the world. So I benefit from that. Um, but I don't believe that we can have utopia without God. So as that project is questioned, it's opening all these faith questions, you know, and just little stories like people I know, guys I know, have known for 30, 40 years who have been disinterested in faith, who are now asking me questions, like just little lived realities like that. The second thing too is that when I read, I read, read through the Gospels a couple of years ago and just one word that just kept bumping you know, out at me was uh, do, not, do not be afraid. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> continually. Like he just says it again and again, do not be afraid. And you know, if we really believe in Jesus, that he has history moving towards his, his ends, um, that he defeated death, he defeated the powers and principalities, they were humiliated um, on the cross that I actually am called then to, to be a bearer of good news, um, that I am actually called to preach the gospel, which is it's good. It's not just news for a bad time. It's good news. And I guess to add a third too, I mean, I just, I just read through um, Damien Sandbrook's two histories of the United Kingdom during the 70s. And what struck me was you've got 1970s, what are the big issues? You've got should Britain be in the European Union, terrorism, economic stagnation, uh, gender fluidity, David Bowie, you know, is gender norms disappearing, um, the sexual revolution, um, how schools were being changed with now a neo-Marxist supposedly, um, you know, new curriculum. And there was, so, there was differences, but so many more realities, but it was actually worse. 
the IRA were just bombing people and shooting people in, in central London and Birmingham and these places. Uh, you know, you had a you had an oil crisis. So, like many things we're going through, are actually nowhere nowhere near as bad as what's happened in the past. So there is also an element that I think the internet brings it all so close. Um, yeah. So I think that that's what keeps me optimistic. At the at the center, it's ultimately God. Ross Douthat recently talked about this. He wrote about the decade of the 2010s that just concluded, depending on how you you know count your time. But uh, say, isn't it amazing? We're so anxious about what happened. Nothing really happened in the last 10 years, not compared to the previous decade. Well, what's the difference? Why do we feel so much worse about it? And the best answer I can come up with is our smartphones. I mean, that we are just bombarded. I mean, you said earlier, there's the doubling of information that's come out. It just seems we're awash in bad news, mm. and which is a largely technological development, but it's radically affecting our perception of things. And ultimately, I fear it's eroding our faith. And instead of, you know, we're doing our best to try to contextualize, but as somebody I recently read said, we really need to be focusing on textualizing ourselves more mm-hmm. to the scriptures. So a key spiritual practice, of course, you identified there is just familiarizing ourselves with the promises of God and choosing yeah. to trust them as more important than anything else that we could read. The only true words there. I want to... Mm-hmm. Conclude with a couple more questions. Uh, again, my guest is Mark Sayers, author of Reappearing Church, The Hope for Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. These are a little bit more focused on inside the church. Uh, the first one's kind of negative. The next one's more positive. You observe at several points that the most spiritually unhealthy and immature Christians often set the tone for our congregations and resist renewal. Help us diagnose a bit of what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's two elements. I mean, the the impression you get from reading the book of Acts, reading Paul's letters is, you know, it wasn't a, a, you know, a picnic at the early church at all mm-hmm. times. There was, uh, we had false teachers coming in. We had people who were going lukewarm in their faith. Uh, we had people who were doing all kinds of, crazy things that we can identify with today that we see. Um, so there's going to be a dynamic at any stage, in any place in history, in any culture where there are people in the church who um, are in need of renewal. Um, and there's going to be people who resist that renewal as well, um, who don't want to be on board, who their flesh resists what's going on. Um, now, overlaying that, I think the particular difficulty is, is two things. Number one is um, we live in the the age which is currently being destroyed, but the age of public opinion, that somehow we could craft a message that appealed to everyone and kept everyone happy. Um, and politics went like that through, you know, 89 to probably 2010. Um, you know, we can have this anodyne message that marketing can give us with focus groups and you can keep everyone on site. It's just not real. We're, it's being destroyed in politics, you know, arts, culture, everything. And in the church, there's an element that when you bring a gospel message, a, a sanctification message, that's going to challenge people. Um, and so there's going to be people who, who you know, push back on that. The other thing I would say too is that also making that more of a challenge, um, and I bounce off this in the book, but you know, Edwin Friedman, who um, I saw in the book, um, you know, who was a family therapist, um, systems therapist, and a rabbi, you know, he talks about how in the modern world, and he says in human communities, anxiety is infectious. So at the moment, we have the coronavirus, and there is a coronavirus, but more pandemic than the coronavirus is actually anxiety around it. 
Um, so humans will naturally feed off each other's anxiety. And you put that public, public you know, opinion, public relations concept, we can keep everyone happy alongside the fact that anxiety is infectious. What that means is leadership is increasingly not being determined by the anxiety in the room. Um, and so Friedman would say that part of a leader is someone who exhibits a non-anxious presence. Now, Friedman's answer to that is almost to do that through an act of <laughs> super will, you know, personal will. I'm not that good. Uh, but when I read Friedman, I agree with his diagnosis, but I don't think most people, let alone me, can do that, pull that off. But I do know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so me being close to him, walking close to him, allowing scriptures to you know, wage narrative warfare on me, <laughs> my bad scripts, um, to be remade um, you know, into Christ's image, I'm going to become a person of peace when I'm following the Prince of Peace. Um, so I think that's a new form of leadership rather than continually reactive. I mean, you see like giant companies now, like reactively responding to three people writing a bad comment on Facebook about their product. It's madness, you know. Um, and so, you know, we can be like that. Um, and so I think there's a new form of courageous leadership that's less like, let's fight that bear. Rather, it's I'm going to stand here and there's a lot of people in the room anxious, but I'm trusting in Jesus. He's close to me and I'm going to tell a good news story that actually brings everyone with me. Mm. Well, you led right into my last question because <laughs> is there anything else you would add? It really stood out to me. Christian leadership in a self that's self-differentiated in an anxious age. Maybe just give people some of that technical language because I think you just described it right there. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Just help people to understand what you mean in terms of self-differentiation and and how that communicates in an anxious age. Well, I think a self-differentiation is understanding that there's a natural boundary between you and others. And what's interesting is, you know, if you look at scripture, boundaries are a huge part of scripture. The temple was this boundary which kept, you know, holiness and uncleanness separated. And the, the you know, the old temple is gone, but there's a new temple here. But there's still elements of boundaries around holiness. And we can often think of that, say, with sexual sin or financial impropriety. But there's an element that I need a boundary to actually other people's toxic um, emotions, which are so prevalent today to actually be differentiated from that. And what's different again today? Exactly. It's on our phone. It's like um, it comes to our pocket. It's all around. News goes so quickly. Um, and increasingly, many young adults live in a world of constant anxiety. It's, it's, it's become cultural. Um, so a leader is someone who has a good boundary. It's like, yeah, I can understand this is going on. I need to lead these people, but I'm not going to let that affect me. And if I could just speak to, I guess, pastors and perhaps even young pastors. Um, so often our metric is actually going horizontal and sideways and and our marker is like oh what are my friends doing um my you know my friend on instagram is doing this like we're looking for our markers and our metrics horizontally but as i read revival history all the people who got used powerfully had this hidden place uh, you know moody had this this moment where he goes to he's walking i think in new york and he goes to his friend's house and says, i just need to can have a room he goes upstairs and and god just just profoundly meets him and marks his life. Every single person I read had one of those moments. So there's that hidden place, which is our life with God. That's the fount where the self-differentiation comes out. That needs to be where our ministry is driven from. And that's where spiritual authority comes from, where we meet Jesus in that hidden place. Mm. 
Great place to end it, Mark. My guest on Gospel Bound has been Mark Sayers, author of Reappearing Church, The Hope for Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture, published by Moody. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.